0: Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says this, There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world... So that we can take nothing out of it. What we think we own can sometimes own us. Nelson Rockefeller, probably a name familiar to many of you, one of the richest men of his day, is reputed to have summed that up uh, quite well. He was asked by a reporter how much money he reckoned he needed to live on comfortably. He replied, a little more than I get. And his grandfather, John D. Rockefeller, the uber-billionaire, Uh, After he died, his accountant was asked by a journalist, how much did Mr. Rockefeller leave? To which the accountant responded, he left all of it. (laughs) We brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. We maybe believe in our minds the adage that money can't buy you happiness and yet culture would try and disabuse us of that notion that indeed actually we can buy happiness with money if we just get a little bit more. Just a little bit more. How much more could Nelson Rockefeller actually have used? And in comparison to the families who live on the garbage heaps in South America and Brazil, we we have abundant riches. Paul says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Note, he doesn't say money in and of itself is a root of evil. He says that the love of money when our motivating force for life is to gather more and more money, more and more power, more wealth, then if that becomes our primary focus, of course, then that becomes an idol for us, and that starts to own us. We don't own it anymore because it's grabbed us and it has trapped us. If money is used under God's gracious rule and for his reign in its proper perspective, then it does not become a root of all evil. But I have seen in so many ways that money grabs and traps people. We have had friends who have had so much They've started with nothing. They've been fantastic entrepreneurs. They have gotten houses all over the world, jets, and yet it can all collapse and be taken away, and they were never happy. I have seen families who at the death of a loved one, of a parent, are ripped apart because they're arguing over the inheritance. It can just tear relationships apart. We can't take it with us. We didn't bring it into the world with us. We don't get to take it with us. There's only one thing that we actually take with us from this life into eternal life. And it's our Christian character. That's all that we get to take with us into eternity and it's what last sunday's parable was about the unjust steward it's about what this sunday's parable about part at least what this sunday's parable is about it's what this part of the letter to timothy is about it's about the fact that christian character actually matters Paul says we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus shoring up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. He is not talking about works righteousness. He is not talking about the fact that we can earn our way into heaven because we can't. There is only one way to be reconciled with God. And it is through the work of Christ, him crucified, raised, and ascended, seated at the right hand of God. That is the only way that we are saved. It's just a gift. It's just grace. We don't get to do anything to cooperate. All we do is receive grace the gift and once we receive it as Tim, as paul says to timothy you confess that when you confess that it's what we do at baptism or at confirmation when we affirm that he is indeed lord christ comes and resides within us a kernel of his character then is seated within us but he still gives us free will. He doesn't completely take over our being and make us like that into himself. It's a work of transformation. Our Christian character requires our willpower. It requires that we make choices for Christ's way, against our natural way of doing things over and over and over again and again and again because naturally, that's not where we go. Katerina, when she was little, would say, you're not the boss of me. That's that's what we're about, isn't it? You're not the boss of me. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it but in actual fact, if we're all doing what we want to do when we want to do what we want to do, then community falls apart. Christian character is about forming the world for Christ because his character is formed in us. Our natural self will go one way, but our second nature If we allow his character to be formed in us, it does indeed become second nature that then becomes a way natural to us. It changes us. And Paul says this, he says, shun that natural way of being, pursue. That means that's an active verb. We've got to get on board. We've got to actually go in that direction. He says, pursue instead that which builds Christian character. Righteousness, or another word for that is justice. Or integrity, being upright in character. Pursue godliness That means a dependence, a submission, gratitude, obedience, or some respect accorded to God. Pursue faith. That's not the doctrine of what we believe. It's the trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior to pursue, to deepen that, for it to be part of, just part and parcel of who we are, that it expands our being and transforms us into his likeness, trusting in him, Larger and larger and greater. Pursue love. This is agape love. It's that settled affection for others. Even if we don't particularly like them, it's a settled affection because God loves them. So it has nothing to do with us. If God loves them, then we are called to a settled affection for all of his creation. Pursue endurance, that old-fashioned word fortitude. Pursue perseverance, endurance, patience in the face of difficulty. Pursue gentleness, he says, which is kindness, caring, And in this way, character is built. We say that, don't we? Build up character. It's actually built up. It changes, it actually changes our brain. Neuroscience is a relatively uh, new discipline within the sciences. But it's been shown that the brain is a muscle. And the more we use it, the more it changes. It rewires itself. Um, In the UK, in London, um, taxi drivers, the hackney cab drivers, um, have to learn what's called the knowledge, with a capital K. And the knowledge is to memorize every single alley, side street, all of London. And then they take a test. And if they don't pass the test, they don't get to be a a, a taxi in London. The knowledge is huge. But they are the most well-versed of any taxi drivers in the entire world because they've got it all up here. But what they found is that it changes their brain. The hippocampus is larger in taxi cab drivers in London than in the normal run-of-the-mill people. Do you know that violin players, their left hand enlarges. There's some kind of a connection with the discipline of playing the violin, practicing the violin, that that creates a larger left hand. N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe, which is about Christian character, uh, says that he had a friend at school and he was forever practicing the violin. His left hand was one to two sizes larger than his right hand. Can you imagine going into the shops? You need to buy two different sets of gloves if you need gloves. It rewires the brain. What does that mean for us as Christians? If we work at, if we build up Christian character then what scripture tells us about being transformed into the image of Christ is actually going on physically within us. Some of you will remember uh, the year uh, 2009, January 15th. It was an ordinary day in New York City, and I'm reading here from a story in N.T. Wright's book, After You Believed. Flight 1549, a regular U.S. Airways trip from LaGuardia Airport, took off at 1526 local time, bound for Charlotte, North Carolina. The captain, Chesley Sullenberger III, known as Sully, did all the usual checks. Everything was fine in the Airbus A320, fine until two minutes after takeoff, the aircraft ran straight into a flock of Canada geese. One goose in a jet engine would be serious. A flock was disastrous. Almost at once, both the engines were severely damaged and lost their power. The plane was at that point heading north over the Bronx one of the most densely populated parts of the city. Captain Sullenberger and his co-pilots had to make several major decisions instantly if they were going to save the lives of people not only on board but also on the ground. They could see one or two small local airports in the distance but quickly realized that they couldn't be sure of making it that far. If they attempted it, they might well crash land in a built-up area on the way. Likewise, the option of putting the plane down on the New York, New Jersey Turnpike, a busy main road leading in and out of the city, would present huge problems and dangers for the plane and its occupants, let alone for cars and their drivers on the road. That left one option, the Hudson River. It's difficult to crash land on water, One small mistake, catch the nose or one of the wings in the river, say, and the plane will turn over and over like a gymnast before breaking up and sinking. In the two or three minutes they had before landing, Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to do the following vital things along with plenty of other tasks that we amateurs wouldn't understand. They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane could glide as long as possible without power. Fortunately, Sullenberger is also a gliding instructor. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system, which seals vents and valves to make the plane as waterproof as possible once it hit the water. Most of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so that it would come down facing south, going with the flow of the river. And having already turned off the engines, they had to do this using only the battery-operated systems and the emergency generator. Then they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt of the sharp left-hand turn so that on landing, the plane would be exactly level from side to side. Finally, they had to get the nose back up again, but not too far up, and land straight and flat on the water. And they did it. Everyone got off safely, with Captain Sullenberger himself walking up and down the aisle a couple of times to check that everyone had escaped before leaving himself. And once in the life raft, along with other passengers, he went one better. He took off his shirt in the boat and gave it to somebody else who was suffering from the cold in that January climate. It spectacularly illustrates, says N.T. Wright, a vital truth, the power of right habits. You might say it was the result of many years of training and experience. You could call it character. Sullenberger had not, of course, been born with the ability to fly a plane, let alone with the specific skills he exhibited in those vital three minutes, None of the skills required and certainly none of the courage, restraint, cool judgment and concern for others which he displayed is part of the kit we humans possess from birth. You have to work at mastering that sort of skill set, moving steadily toward that goal. You have to want it all, to choose to learn it all, to practice doing it all again And again, and then sometimes when the moment comes, it happens automatically, second nature, as it did for Sully. It doesn't happen naturally for us to be transformed into the image of Christ, but it can happen, and it does happen if we work at it if we work at the discipline, if we give over our lives to Christ. It's what the parables are about in last week's and this week's reading. The parable about the unjust stewards, not an exhortation to unjust business practices, but about being faithful with what God has given us which is everything, including our wealth, absolutely everything that we have. It's being faithful with that which God has has given us. It's also what this week's parable is about, about the proper and generous use of all that God has given us. These letters and Paul's letter, these parables and Paul's letter to Timothy say, why, why? Should we work at our Christian character? After all, grace is a free gift. When we've acknowledged Christ, we've received salvation. So couldn't we just sit back on our haunches and wait? Or no? Because Jesus calls us into deeper pilgrimage, pilgrimage into greater journey into more christian character formation first of all we should be doing this because of sheer gratitude just because we're so grateful for the amazing gift that we have received of our salvation But also it's quite clear from today's parable that we only have this life to do it in. Because at death there is a chasm that is set between us and the other side. And we cannot cross over. We have this life and this life only. And also because we take this Christian character with us into eternity we don't get to take any of the rest of the stuff because we didn't come into the world with it we don't leave the world with it but we do take our Christian character with us to the extent that we have allowed and were and cooperated with Christ to have that formed in us because as we've been talking about and, and seeing in the series that we did, Surprise by Hope, with N.T. Wright on Sunday mornings, and that we will redo that on Wednesday evenings, there is life after life after death. Let me repeat that. There is life after life after death. So when we die, we live. We live with Christ if we are in Christ. But, as Paul says to Timothy, we are awaiting the manifestation of Jesus Christ our Lord. That means he's coming back. And he will bring with him, when he comes back, all those who have already died in Christ. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And those who are still living will be with him. And here's the thing, we will reign with him not in some autocratic hierarchical way because of course his reign is through servanthood but we will reign with him insofar as our christian character has been built up into his and that is the promise and that is what we all await We await the manifestation of Jesus Christ who will make a new heaven and a new earth combined now, not separated, because he will be all in all. And we won't need light because God will be our light. And so we work at our Christian character because of all of these things. So let us be a people who pursue, who build up, who rewire our beings in cooperation with Christ, whose character is already a kernel within us, to the fullness of Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.